This podcast is presented in partnership with the League of Women Voters Connecticut and Everyday Democracy. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks so much for joining me. We've been on a bit of a hiatus here at Steady Habits, preparing some big idea podcasts for you, and I'll tell you more about what's to come in just a little bit. But first, one of the things that people are trying to do here in Connecticut to make things work just a little bit better is to make voting easier, to make it fairer, safer, and to have those votes really count for something. Every 10 years, the census gives us a chance to do that. We're in the middle right now of the redistricting process, where census results are used to draw new congressional and state legislative maps. This process shines the light on a few things. One is that states like Connecticut work pretty hard to get people to fill out census forms so that we'll have the most accurate count. And then there are states like Texas and Florida that seem to do everything they can to keep from getting a full count of their residents. Connecticut's also among the states that has tackled a huge issue, finally, getting rid of prison gerrymandering. This was the state law that counted prison inmates as residents of the communities where they were incarcerated instead of in their home communities. But one place Connecticut isn't on the vanguard is redistricting. There are eight states, including California and New York, that have independent commissions to draw district lines. Others, like Iowa, have what's called an advisory commission. But Connecticut, like most other states, leaves the drawing of district maps to lawmakers. And in states with one-party control, it's pretty easy to redistrict in a way that solidifies partisan advantage. On today's program, we're going to talk with Michael Lee. He's senior counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program. His work focuses on redistricting, voting rights, and elections. He was the author of a widely cited blog on redistricting and election law issues that the New York Times called indispensable. Our conversation was part of a program earlier this spring called Redistricting in Connecticut, Drawing a Better Map. We talked on Zoom right after census figures had been announced, confirming that Connecticut would retain its five congressional seats, but also leaving us with this head-scratcher. Neighboring New York State would have kept another seat in Congress if they'd counted only 89 more people in the 2020 census. That's right, just 89 more people. So I started off by asking Michael the only question I could really think of. Is this system working exactly the way it's supposed to? You know, you could look at it as a glass half full or glass half empty sort of situation. Again, New York was widely expected to lose uh, two seats or come really close to losing two seats. It came really close to losing zero seats. And that really is a testament to the, the investment that the state of New York and that the city of New York put into getting people to participate in the census. And, and bear in mind that when people were participating in the census, it was right in the middle of the pandemic as New York was being hit really hard. Um, and the fact that, you know, somehow through all of that, people were nonetheless <laughs> managed to complete the census in, in much higher numbers than expected, one of the, the best um, response rates in the country. I mean, that really is a testament to the investment that not only the, the government, but also um, community groups put in because they, they recognize how much was at stake because it's not only representation, right? It's it's, you know, it's also federal funding. $1.5 trillion in federal funds are allocated to states every year uh, based on the results of the census. That's everything from education to transportation. For that matter, vaccines, you know, the number of vaccines that states got 
for the for COVID was in part determined by the the 2010 census, and so um, you know people recognized that it was really important to invest in the census, and it sort of paid off. Whereas in contrast, states like Texas, um, you know, which is a very fast growing state, um, Texas decided to invest zero dollars in census turnout. And it fell short. So, you know, it's almost certainly in part because, you know, there were TV ads in Texas. There weren't people getting, you weren't getting mailers. No one was calling you to say participate in the census. And so, you know, you know, I, I, I would probably look at New York as a glass, like 90% full situation as opposed to a glass half empty. Yeah, Michael, and maybe before we we turn to some other specifics about the way the redistricting process works, I think that these demographic trends questions are really important. And I, I think one thing for people to understand is how exactly the census numbers directly correlate with how many representatives each state has. For instance, here in Connecticut, we're the fourth slowest growing state. As a matter of fact, of the states that are growing at all, we are the slowest growing. There are three states that are losing population, but but we grew about 1% over the course of the last 10 years. Many people would look at that and say, Connecticut shouldn't really have five congressional districts. We should have four or, or fewer. So how exactly does that work? So there's a formula set in federal law that allocates the congressional seats among the states, and it starts um, with every state getting at least one, right? So there, um, so every, that takes 50 out of the 435 out, and then there are 385 seats left. And then there is this formula that, um, you know, calculates values for each state and then, you know, uh, assigns seats to states. Um, but, you know, it, it all matters not only on how your state does, um, but also how other states do. So New York, um, you know, 89 more people, New York would have had an additional congressional seat. Likewise, Minnesota, if 26 fewer people had filled out the census, then New York would have gotten the seat that Minnesota managed to retain. So it's a, you know, it's a, you know, of both how you do and how other states do. And, you know, it's, I, I will say, you know, one of the things that many people have talked about is, you know, whether the, the size of the U.S. House is too small, because the size of the U.S. House was set in 1929, when the country was a much smaller country. Um, and so the districts were much more equally populated. But now, um, you know, there's actually quite a bit of variance in the size of districts among states. So Montana, which picked up a second seat, its districts will have about 542,000 people, um, whereas the Idaho, right next door to Montana, also has two seats, but its districts will have about 920,000 people, so like almost double the size. Um, and you know that is a function, um, you know, of the formula, but more importantly, the size of the function of the fact that we only have 435 seats in a country that now is 331 million people, and um, you know that's probably not enough seats optimally. So if you, you know, get stuck in an elevator with someone and you, you talk to them about what you do and they said, I don't really understand this like whole redistricting thing. Like, what do you tell them in, in a quick way to explain the process by which we redraw district lines, not just these congressional district lines, but district lines and state legislatures as well? What, what do you say to people? Well, I, I guess I, I would start. Um, I've never had to do this in an elevator, so I'm trying to imagine <laughs> that. But um, it's a long elevator know, ride. <laughs> a long elevator ride. Um, you know, I, I always start like you know, like you know, we 
we draw districts so that uh, we determine who's in power. And in this country, we have elections every two years because the framers, the, the founding generation thought that, you know, as the mood of the people shifted, so should the composition of legislature, so should the composition of Congress. Um, and and what happens in when we draw the lines instead is oftentimes people put their thumb on the scale so that they sort of predetermine the results of elections. And so we re really, in many cases, don't actually need to have the election because we already know who's going to win, um, which is really anathema to the whole purpose of this. And what I do is we work on reforms and work on you know ways to sort of make the process better to, so that it's more true to the, the, the founding generation's vision, which is that, you know, the legislatures of the country, Congress should be an exact portrait, a miniature of the people as a whole. And, and that's really what we want, because, you know, that's, you know, it, it, the Congress should be, the U.S. House at least should be, you know, a miniature of the American people, you know, in all of its diversity, political diversity, ethnic diversity, regional diversity. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't happen because we also have another long American tradition, sort of a dark tradition of putting our thumb on the scale and, and drawing maps so that we favor certain incumbents or favor certain political parties. And, you know, that's what we, you know, I think a lot of groups are fighting against. Is, is the goal to make districts that are more competitive so that we don't just know who's always going to get elected and we almost don't have to have the election? Or is the goal to truly represent the people who live in that particular area, because in some ways those two things could work together, but in some ways those things are very divergent yeah. ideas. Yeah, they, they are. Yeah. I mean, and that's a good point because, um, you know, there are places, you know, I, I live in Brooklyn, New York, where there aren't a lot of Republicans and it could be, you really can't draw districts that are competitive for Republicans if your life depended on it. Um, likewise in West Texas, it's very hard to draw districts that are, um, you know, competitive for Democrats, right? And, and that's okay. That that just that is just a function of the area, and you shouldn't try to have competitiveness at all cost. Um, but on the other hand, there are many places where if you just sort of plop down a district size shape um, on the state and didn't sort of try to rig it in any way, the district would have a, a fair amount of competitiveness, right? Just because you were keeping communities together and as community mood shifts, um, you know, who wins would also shift. Now that doesn't happen everywhere. You know, there are places that are very democratic and some places that are very Republican and that's okay. But what, what happens unfortunately is that in places where you could have competition, um, people decide to take that competition out and just sort of engineer it out of the system. And that's where it becomes problematic because then you end up like take North Carolina, which is a 50-50 state. Uh, Republicans drew a map that gave them 10 out of 13 congressional seats, a 10-3 map. Pennsylvania had a 13-5 map and another 50-50 state. Ohio, close to a 50-50 state, had you know a 12-4 map um, in favor of Republicans. And that's sort of the, the putting your thumb on the scale that is sort of very anti-democratic. I think it's, it's fair to say that a lot of lawmakers, if they are in legislative districts that are drawn a certain way, it protects their incumbency. What is their incentive, frankly, to get together and meet and do anything about it if it's just going to mean maybe they they lose their job? You know, the biggest predictor of whether a state will have problems with redistricting or not is whether one party can control the process. When one party controls the process, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, that's an open invitation to gerrymander maps um, and to discriminating communities of color. And simply breaking up that 
that one party monopoly through whether it's by taking power away and giving you to a commission or by requiring a supermajority as Connecticut does or requiring a supermajority um, and with a certain level of support from the minority party as Ohio has done, um, you know, goes a long way because then the process either deadlocks and it goes to a court or the parties end up compromising. But simply taking away the power from one party to decide what they want to do by themselves, um, you know, is, is really the key to successful reform. And there are lots of different ways to get there. I mean, we've talked a lot about gerrymandering. And I think that, you know, uh, if you look at some Connecticut maps, you can see some instances of that. Give people in Connecticut an example of what real gerrymandering looks like. Like what when it's really taken to its its ultimate extreme, how bad can gerrymandering get? Uh, well, if, if you look at like again the Pennsylvania, the the North Carolina maps, you know, Pennsylvania was thirteen five for Republicans um, in the congressional delegation. North Carolina was ten three in favor of Republicans in the congressional delegation of fifty fifty states, and those maps really sort of stuck. Um, you know, which is something that we didn't used to see in the past, but, you know, the data and the technology are getting so much better that you can draw maps that really sort of stick for the whole of the decade that don't break down over the course of the decade. Um, but to sort of imagine something that is like a really aggressive gerrymander, um, the city of Austin in Texas is, you know, um, split up into six different congressional districts. One of them stretches all the way to Fort Worth, which is about four hours to the north. One of them stretches to Houston, which is about four hours to the east. Another stretches to San Antonio, another stretches into West Texas. Um, so you get the sense, I mean, you know, and that is, um, you know, really to neutralize, you know, this very liberal pocket of voters in Austin, um, you know, which, you know, whether if you've ever been to Austin, you, you, you may like it, you may hate it, but it is a unique city. It's the 11th largest city in the country. It has unique needs, um, you know, unique industries, unique needs. Um, and it doesn't anchor a single congressional district because, you know, it was, you know, it was just, it was split apart and fractured into different districts in order to maximize, um, you know, Republican power. The other thing I will say is that in much of the country, the thing too important that, that's important to understand about gerrymandering is that it almost always comes at the expense of communities of color. Um, Austin is perhaps an exception, but, you know, especially in the South, um, there still aren't enough white Democrats to sort of like really use white Democrats as the means to gerrymander, right? You know, the, the, instead it's, uh, you know, be, the, you know, the Democrats only get about 25, 28% of the white vote in most of the South. And the problem with white Democrats is that they live close to white Republicans, sometimes in the same house. And so unless you're drawing the line out of somebody's bed, you really can't gerrymander very effectively. Because of residential segregation, it's much easier to split apart or pack together communities of color in order to move the dial up or down on its political effect. And so um, even though people talk about this as a partisan issue, it actually is a racial justice issue as well. Michael, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about our, our state of Connecticut here. It is a political process. The political process in Connecticut is controlled and has been for quite some time almost entirely by Democrats. How to draw a map that is both fair and competitive, especially in such a small, compact area. When you're talking about Texas, if you get in the car and go four hours from Connecticut, you're in Maine or Pennsylvania. So I don't know, how do you react to how Connecticut does what what it does? Um, you know, Connecticut actually does, you know, pretty well compared to other states. And I know, like, you know, when I go around the country, everybody always wants to say our, our state is the worst. And, you know, like this inevitably, you know, I... 
other other than Iowa, Iowa people are very proud of their model. But um, but you know, most states you go to, people want to tell you about like how the maps are not well drawn. But you know, Connecticut because it has a two thirds majority requirement in the legislature, even though it's a political process. And you know, right now. Uh, in the House, there is not a Democratic two-thirds majority, uh, you know, unless things have changed um, more recently. But, you know, uh, you know, so that means that there has to be at least some level of compromise. You have to get some support from the other party. Now, there's probably more that could be done to make the the process fair, um, you know. But that, you know, it's it's, you know, I would say it's a solid B, you know, even a B plus process overall. Um, you know, some of the things that, you know, could be done to perhaps strengthen it or, you know, to strengthen some of the rules, you know, even even though it's left in the legislature, you know, the the, the reality is if you go and you look at the rules in most states, they're, you know, they're, they're relatively few rules, even for state legislative re- redistricting, but, you know, certainly for congressional redistricting, there's oftentimes almost no rules. Um, and that leaves a lot of room for, for mischief. And so simply telling the legislature what you want, telling them what, order they're supposed to apply the rules, you know, goes a long way. It helps with litigation if if it comes to that, right? And as, as most people know, the, the U.S. Supreme Court has stepped out of policing partisan gerrymandering, saying, like, you can't bring claims into the federal constitution. Um, some state courts have been willing to police partisan gerrymandering under st- state constitutions, but there are things that you would do um, to make sure that they do, like writing that into the state constitution or writing it into law, um, you know, that it, that goes sort of a long way um, to making the process a lot better. Um, and in terms of competition, um, you know, they say value, they can be factored in there. Um, but again, as we talked about earlier, you know, it's not always clear that you want competition, right? You know, sometimes if you try to draw a competitive district in Brooklyn, right, where, which is, you know, I, I live in a state assembly district where um, Barack Obama got 98% of the vote and Hillary Clinton got 96% of the vote and Donald Trump was a third place finisher. Um, and so, um, you really can't draw, you know, very competitive districts where I live, um, unless you were to really draw them out into Westchester or into, you know, way out into Long Island or something like that. And that's not what you would want either. So I think competition is something that people oftentimes value, but, you know, you have to sort of like, it has to be competition where it's sort of realistic, right? And sometimes it's not realistic. You can't take politics completely out of the process. Many people would say, if my lawmaker isn't taking part in it and it's some commission, a lot of people don't trust it. They say it's a, you know, it's a room full of hooded figures making <laughs> making up uh, district maps behind closed doors. How do you guard against a fear that if you take it out of the legislature's purview, you don't have fairness or accountability? Um, well, you know, what, what makes California's commission and other independent commissions really successful is that they have a series of checks and balances, right? They don't depend on having perfect map drawers. They recognize that people have interest. Um, and sometimes you may have people who, who have bad intent. Um, but the thing is that they are the decider of the process, right? In California, there are 15 members or 14 members of the commission, five Democrats, five, five Republicans and four independents or third party people. And to pass a map, you have to have not only a majority of the commission, but you have to have, you know, uh, two people from the Democratic bucket, two people from the Republican bucket, and, and two people from the independent third party bucket, right? In other words, so it's not as though Democrats and independents can get 
together and screw Republicans or vice versa. Um, you you really do have to have bipartisan support for a map, and that that goes a long way. There's lots of transparency and other provisions, um, and the, the commissioners themselves are screened for conflicts of interest. They can't be too closely tied to the political process. They're they have to undergo this 90 minute interview before three auditors. It's it's a really complicated process to get all the California commission. So none of this guarantees there won't be rogue actors or that people won't come in with bad motive. But it, even if they do. Their checks and balances. And that's really what makes a system work because, again, the goal is not to let one group decide everything. That was Michael Lee. He's senior counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program. We talked as part of a Zoom program called Redistricting in Connecticut, Drawing a Better Map. It was presented in partnership with the League of Women Voters Connecticut and Everyday Democracy. Coming up next week on Tuesday, the 22nd of June, join me along with Mark Pazniokas, Keith Faneth, and Jan Ellen Spiegel from the Connecticut Mirror to wrap up this year's legislative session. There was a lot of stuff that got done, some stuff that didn't get done. So we'll talk about everything from the state budget to marijuana to uh, environmental issues. And hopefully you can join us. Just go to ctmirror.org events and you can sign up there to take part. And if you're in the restaurant business, send me a line at jdankoski at ctmirror.org. We're trying to tell the story of a restaurant industry that is remaking itself, that's rebuilding, and that's trying to retool after the pandemic. We'd love to hear your stories. Again, you can send me an email. It's jdankoski at ctmirror.org. Thanks to George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson of Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut for their steady beats. I'm John Dankoski. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you again soon.